0: We are talking about the subject of human weakness this morning, from Ecclesiastes chapter six, verses ten through twelve. And uh, we don't really like to focus on our weaknesses. Most of us don't, but it's something that we need to come to grips with. We need to to deal with that. The old preachers used to say, "Before we can talk about the good news, we've got to talk about the bad news." The Bible tells us that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is bad news. Sin destroys. The wages of sin is death. But the good news, of course, is the gospel that Jesus died to save us from our sins, and all those who trust and obey him will live eternally with God. As he is our substitute on the cross, for our sins you got to talk about the bad news though before you desire that Savior who is your good news well our text contains bad news about human weakness and essentially it says the world is broken and there's nothing that you can do about it but that's not the end of the story we may not be able to save ourselves but God can by looking at human weakness through the, the lens of Ecclesiastes, we learn to lean more on God, to trust in Him more, and uh, our faith will grow stronger. And faith is a, a big part of the gospel, a big part of what we are all about. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, The righteous shall live by faith. And Romans 5.1 says we're justified by faith. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith. Any exercise we can do to strengthen our faith is worthwhile. Taking a look at human limitations in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 will cause us to stop relying so much on our own strength, knowing how limited it is, and lean more on God... Strengthening our faith. That's what we intend to do this morning. Let's look at five things. Number one, the first limitation in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, is that we cannot name what has already been named. Look at what the text says. Whatever has come to be has already been named. To understand this, you have to get what the Bible means when it talks about a name. It's not just some label you slap on your kid so you can call them and they come running when you call. It's more than that. It's much deeper than that. When Solomon's talking about a name, he's talking about something that fixes its character and states what it really is. So God has named things. In other words, he has established reality and we can try to rename it. But we can't change what already has been named. When God created the world, He made light and He called it light. And light is light. We can't change it by by calling it by a different name. He named the day. He named the night. And these are day and night. And the world often tries to mix these things up. Uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 Isaiah says woe to those who call good evil and evil good who put darkness for light light for darkness bitterness for sweet and sweet for bitter the world can do that and we see it all the time but it doesn't change reality we can't name what has already been named our name is man that is adam adam and man are the same in hebrew and it's related to the word for ground or earth genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says that man was formed by the dust of the earth and god breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul in genesis 3:19 god said you are dust "...and to dust you shall return." Talking about our basic mortality. We can't change that. We can't become eternal beings by trying to rename ourselves and change our destiny. It is reality that we're dealing with here. Have you ever heard this saying? It's from Shakespeare. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. It's an old adage that is used a lot. And in essence, it says, The essence or qualities of something or someone remain the same regardless of our attempts to rename them. You can call a rose garbage, but it's still going to be beautiful, and it's still going to smell nice. Your renaming it doesn't change the essence of what it is. And we may not like reality. We may not like how God has made the world. It doesn't matter. We can't change it. God has made it. It is what it is. Now, we do have free will, meaning we can choose whether or not we want to cooperate with the way things are. And we can choose to respond how we wish to the circumstances in life, but we can't control the consequences that occur if we choose poorly. We, uh, if we choose to live in a world of illusion and not according to the truth, we're going to suffer for it. Jesus said this in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. What is God if He's not ultimate reality? Eternal life and freedom from sin... It's about aligning oneself with what is true and what is right, what has already been named. You can fight it, you have free will, but it won't do you any good. That's the first limitation. Let's move on to the second. Number two, we cannot escape our innate human weaknesses. Look at uh, the next part of verse 10. And it is known what man is. What is he talking about? Well, there's two things that I'd like to mention that we know about man. First of all, we know that we are mortal. We know life is brief and uncertain, that we are flesh, and that one day we will die. Look at the next chapter in Ecclesiastes and some of the things that uh, Solomon says. We'll begin in verse 2. He says this It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's basically saying it's better to be in a funeral home than at a party. sounds like a lot of fun right you know this uh, book of Ecclesiastes can be a little pessimistic sometimes it can really confront us with hard truths what he's saying here shouldn't be ignored we're foolish if we don't understand that life is short and all lives will eventually come to an end Moses said the same thing in Psalm 90 verse 12 Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's wise to know that life is brief and uncertain. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's a hard truth, nobody's favorite subject, but we need to understand our mortality, this basic weakness, we are mortal and when we do we'll focus more on things that last and less on temporal things that will pass away that's the first thing that we need to understand in terms of what he says it is known what man is here's the second thing the first thing is we are mortal the second thing we know is that we were made for heaven Although we live on earth and suffer in mortal frames, these bodies of ours, we know instinctively that we were made for heaven. We know this. In an earlier chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says, God has put eternity in man's heart. You feel it, I feel it. Something is wrong with death. That shouldn't be all there is. We long for so much more. And that desire within us, that we all know, it says something very, very important. C.S. Lewis has something interesting to stay on, say on this point in his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory. He said, if we are made for heaven, it's logical to assume that the desire for our proper place... Will already be in us. He illustrates, he says, um, the fact that we get hungry for food tells us that our bodies are made to repair themselves with food and that we live in a, an environment where food exists. You know, that desire within us says that food is available and that we need food. On the other hand, we uh, don't desire to live underwater. We can't breathe water. It's torturous. It's death if we stay underwater too long. And the reason we don't have the desire to live underwater is because we're not made for that. That's not the world we were meant to be in. Why do we have a desire for heaven if there is no heaven? That desire within us tells us that there is a counterpart beyond this world that fulfills that desire. So what are we to do with this paradox? We know what man is. Number one, he is mortal. Number two, although he is mortal and living in a temporal earth, he is made for heaven. What are we to do with that paradox? Well, in a word, we need to prepare for our eternal home and while we're on earth we shouldn't focus so much on things that will pass away but we must focus on the things that will last forever the way Jesus put it is lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven not treasures on the earth let's move on number three we're looking at limitations from Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 10 through 12 as we talk about human weakness let's notice in the third place We cannot win a contest against God. You know, this frustrated Job when he got to his lowest point, having lost his family and all his possessions and his health. He was wanting to die. He wished he had never been born. And he thought, well, if I could have a court case against God, I would be justified. But then it occurred to him, I'm talking about God. I can't win a contest against God. Look at Job 9, verse 32. He says, He is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. It'd be foolish. The odds are stacked against him. God is omnipotent, omniscient. Job said, even if I got a trial, I feel like I've been treated unfairly, but I can't win against God. Nobody wins in a contest against Almighty God. I don't know how he knew it, but Terry picked the perfect song just a little while ago, Have Thine Own Way, Thou Art the Potter, I Am the Clay. I wanted to bring up under this point Isaiah and what he said in verse 40, chapter 45, verse 9. He says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? Imagine that, clay complaining to the potter about how he is being shaped. It's absurd, right? It's equally absurd to think that we can win a contest against God. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, the wise man says, he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And the one in that passage is God. We are not able to dispute against God because He's stronger than we are. And so what that means is your happiness and your flourishing in life depends on the degree to which you align yourself with reality, which getting back to the first point, that means the ultimate reality, God if you fight it and choose a life of illusion that's your free will but you're going to suffer from it an example there was a a doctor dr herbert herbert needleman who did a lot of work in the 20th century on lead toxicity now we've known about the problems of lead toxicity since 5th century bc in the in the days of hippocrates But in America in the 20th century, we were still using it in our pipes. We were using it in our paint, in our gasoline, and it was making people sick. But the standards were determined by how much lead could kill a person. And Dr. Needleman had this novel idea. He thought, well, why don't we base standards on what's making people sick? Let's not settle for what kills them, but... Let's start looking at the reality of lead and ask ourselves, how much of it can the human body take before it gets sick? It causes all kinds of problems in young people, cognitive impairments, developmental problems. In adults, it causes reproductive problems, neurological issues, cardiovascular issues, very toxic. And so... He looked at the reality, yes, one reality of lead is that it's malleable and easy to shape into pipes. It makes a nice smooth sheen of paint. It's um, helpful in many other ways. But another very important reality about lead is it's poisonous to the human body. And however much you enjoy your pipes and your gas and your paint, it's still going to poison your body. And so we have to quit fighting reality and start lining ourselves up with it. And through the influence of Dr. Needleman and others, we've started to raise the standards when it came to lead and make our environment a little bit safer with regard to it. You know, I think it was John Adams who said, facts are stubborn things. You can't go up against reality facts are stubborn things they don't change we have to either live in an illusion and suffer for it or align ourselves with what is right and what is true you can't dispute against God for ages philosophers have talked about the link between happiness and living according to reality Aristotle discussed the concept of eudaimonia a Greek word for human human flourishing And he said that human flourishing can be achieved through living according to reason and reality. Stoics like Epictetus believed the secret to happiness was accepting reality, realizing there are things that you can't change, things beyond your control, and just accepting those things. Buddha taught that suffering rises out of the illusion of permanence, and peace comes from not attaching yourself to that which is Impermanent, constantly changing and passing away. But before all of those thinkers started talking about coming to grips with reality, Solomon was talking about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he spoke of a life under the sun, which is a life that ignores the eternal realities. And he said, It's vain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the conclusion of the book is in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The word duty was supplied by the translators. What he's really saying is this is the whole of man. This is what makes man whole. This is what satisfies him. This is what is fulfilling to human beings. Aligning themselves with the one with whom we cannot dispute, getting involved in the contest getting on the winning side of the contest we can't win on our own you can't win a contest against god and so the right move is to get on his side let's go to another example another example is you cannot decide the best way to use your time look at verse 12 who knows what is good for man While he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. What he means by this is the days are so unpredictable. This day probably isn't going to wind up the way that you planned it this morning. Now, it may be something small. Hopefully it's going to be something that doesn't matter much, like a flat tire or something even less than that. Maybe they get your order wrong at the restaurant at lunch. It could be something big. You do not know what a day may bring, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. And so we're not to boast about tomorrow. We're not to bank on it. Prepare, yes, plan, of course, but always, as James advises in James 4, with the, with the qualification, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, with divine guidance... When we're not just living under the sun, as Solomon says, we can know a little bit about how to use our time. By putting God first, we can make good choices about how to manage our time. And so we're told to, to not be ignorant, not be deceived, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. We can't decide the best way to use our time. On our own, with divine guidance, though, we can. One last example of human limitations as we talk about weakness. And this comes from chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, verse 12. We cannot know much about life after death. Solomon says, Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? In those days, even in the inspired writers of the Old Covenant, they knew very little about the afterlife. Job writes about it, and Job speaks of the grave, the Hebrew word is sheol, as this shadowy existence that we know very little about. They believed in the soul and its ability to live beyond the grave, but not much more than that. It was frightening to them to think about death. We know in the light of the gospel much, much more. And the Bible wants us to know certain things. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4 13 and following, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about those who have died and passed away. He says, they're not going to miss out. But when Christ returns, Their bodies will rise from the dead and meet the Lord in the air. Those of us who are remaining until He comes, we will meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. We read in the book of Revelation these symbols of heaven. Streets of gold and gates of pearl and all the jewels. And we know that is figurative language Describing for our finite minds that which we can't fully comprehend or grasp. But we do know this the Father will be there, and the tree of life will be there, and in the midst of the city will be the river of life that will flow forevermore. And there will be no dying, no mourning, nor pain, nor crying anymore. The former things will have passed away. We haven't been told everything. We know little more than Solomon knew when he wrote these words, but we know enough to know there's hope in life after death. And that's all we need to know. We'll find the rest out when our time comes. As human beings, especially when compared to God, we are frail creatures. We're ignorant. There's so much that we don't know. So what do we do with that? Our knowledge of these limitations should encourage us to strengthen our faith in God. I want to share with you something said by commentator Michael Eaton. He said, the preacher, talking about Solomon here, is slamming every door except the door of faith. And when you try to make the world what it isn't, Doors just keep slamming in your face until you walk through that door of faith. It's really the only one available to mankind if we're seeking happiness and peace. In Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon returns to this subject of human weakness in verses 13 and 14. He says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight... What he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God is all powerful. He has all things under his control. There is so little that is under our control. Sometimes prosperity comes in life, sometimes adversity. But God can see us through all those things. When we don't know what to do, and when we are not in control, we should trust in the Lord and lean on Him, knowing how weak we really are. And in that faith, we will find our salvation. The weakest we are is when we are enslaved to sin. Are you a slave to sin? Have you been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you been cleansed of your sins? Have you trusted God to the point of obedience, repenting of your sins and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you been baptized to rise, to walk in newness of life? Are you leading a faithful life so that one day you can inherit that salvation, inherit in heaven, and be with God after this life is over. Life is too short to be banking on things that pass away. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There the moth does not corrupt. The thieves don't break through and steal. In heaven, you can live forever with the Father. If we can help you in any way, let us do so right now as we stand together and as we sing.